This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. Today we will be discussing the China-India relations in the wake of the Balakot air strikes by India against Pakistan. Just a few days ago, China put on hold a request to add the leader of Jaisa Mohammad Masood Azhar on a UN sanctions blacklist. This is the fourth time China has done it. What does it tell us about the state of India-China relations? What does it tell us the state uh, tell us about the state of China-Pakistan relations and its future? Can these two giants, India and China, coexist in the Asian geopolitical landscape? To discuss this and more, I have with me in the studio Dr. Jabin Jacob. Jabin Jacob is an associate professor at the Department of International Relations and Governance Studies at the Shivnadar University. He was formerly the assistant director at the Institute of Chinese Studies, New Delhi. Jabin is easily one of our best China hands, young, well-read and balanced. Welcome to the National Security Conversations, Dr. Jabin Jacob. Thank you, Happy. Jabin, let me begin with this question about China putting um, a hold um, uh, on the request to add Jaisa Mohammad chief um, for the fourth time on this UN sanctions list. What do you make of it? What is the Chinese rationale for this? Well, I don't think we have to read any great rationale into it, except that this is a very tactical position for the Chinese. The Chinese wish to support their friend Pakistan. Uh, and especially in a scenario where Pakistan and India have had just had a minor confrontation uh, you know, on their borders, uh, it would not do, I think, for China to be seen as taking a very neutral position. Especially when the impression inside China is that the Indians and the Americans are always working together. So China wishes to show itself as being capable of supporting its allies as and when required. But look at it this way. Jaisa Mohammed is already on the sanctioned list, yeah. the UN blacklist as mm -hmm. it were. So putting um, its chief on that list is no big deal. And, and China and India has a um, um, great trade partnership um, and things have not been too bad between the, between the two sides. So why sacrifice this relationship? for um, something that looks so inequous at the, at the, at the, at the, on the face of it? Well, I think uh, for, from the Chinese perspective, it is not quite like that. If the Indians are so insistent on putting, I mean, the same question can apply to the Indian side as well. Since JEM is already uh, banned by the uh, UN, what's the big deal about putting its leader on the blacklist? And because the Indians make such a big deal of it, I think China sees it as a bargaining point or a bargaining chip uh, with the Indians. Plus, like I said, the Chinese are very, very concerned about the India-US relationship. Somehow they see their job as balancing the Americans. And whatever the Americans do or can do uh, or won't do, the, Amer the Chinese also want to do exactly the same. So they want to give the impression that they are a reliable and an important partner for Pakistan. And their objective is, of course, to get the Americans out of South Asia and to look like they are the big power in South Asia somehow mediating between India and Pakistan. That's the objective. 
Okay, so that takes me to the question about Dalai Lama. It's a natural sort of connection. So how uneasy or unhappy is China about India giving asylum to Dalai Lama? I'd say very unhappy because this, the, the boundary dispute is essentially what? It's in essentially the dispute on a boundary between India and Tibet. And when India has hosted the Dalai Lama at home, the Chinese see this as a sign of Indian, uh, the Indians deliberately challenging or questioning Chinese control over Tibet. And so, whatever the Dalai Lama does, because he, does, he lives in India, is seen as something that directly impinges on India-China relations. This is from the Chinese perspective. Okay, so now coming back to the Pakistan question. So, what in your opinion are some of the uh, large uh, uh, grand strategic undercurrents of the China-Pakistan relationship? Is it, is it more than just containing India or is it about containing India? Oh, it's both. It's more than about just containing India. Uh, the Chinese see the Indians as their only uh, long-term rivals in South Asia, in Asia. Uh, you know, India is a democracy. India is another one and a half billion or nearly a billion plus uh, people. And this is also a country that manages to govern a billion plus people using democracy and regular free and fair elections. And this is a challenge to the political ideology of the Communist Party of China. And so, uh, the, it is important for China, especially in this particular stage where the Communist Party in China, of China, uh, is turning extremely ideological. China is about taking a position where international norms and rules and regulations uh, they see as Western dominated or of Western origin, which need to be taking on board Chinese views and, uh, you know, ideas as well. And therefore, when they see that Indians are you know, uh, they, they see the Indians as posing a political challenge to the notion that Asia can be for Asians only or Asian values or Asian ways. Because India combines the best of both or at least in principle it's supposed to combine the best of East and West. Uh, now on Pakistan, like I said, the primary intention there is to get the Americans out of South Asia because the Chinese see the Americans as their principal challengers and therefore they will do what it takes to side with Pakistan against India. So from what you are saying, the feeling that I am getting is that China looks at India not just as a strategic challenge, China also looks at India as an ideological challenge. Yes. Can you explain a little more um, that, that particular point? I thought that was very interesting. So, well, you know, the ideological challenge, the political challenge is all part of the larger uh, strategic challenge. So it's not just about, you know, uh, uh, you know what's going on on the border, uh, what happened in Dogra. For example, Take what happened in Doklam. The Chinese combined the reaction on Doklam on the border with a very high decibel uh, campaign at home and internationally in the media mm -hmm. to vilify what India did. Right? Uh, it tried to show India in poor light, India as a hegemon dominating its smaller neighbor, all the while ignoring that the Chinese were actually sitting on land that the Bhutanese had claimed, that this was a dispute. Uh, disputed territory between China and Bhutan and China was glibly claiming this territory as its own. Now this high volume campaign uh, at home as well as abroad is partly political. I mean the issue on the border is actually if you look at it in the larger scheme of things, trade, all the other areas where India and China could cooperate is something minor that could have been resolved between the two sides. They have mechanisms for these things, right? But they decided to go hammer and tongs against the Indians because they wanted to show India as somebody that does not observe 
international law. Fine, but let's go back to this issue of the ideological yeah. challenge, mm -hmm. how the Communist Party of China looks at India. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you give us a little more about that worldview about India in, the, in, in Beijing, the Communist Party of China? So, you know, this is not something that they would acknowledge openly. But, you know, we say that these days Indian movies are big in China, right? Uh, that Indian movies are popular in China. But the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party does not want any such trend to develop in which it is not fully, uh, in which it does not fully control. Because that's the nature of Communist Party, uh, Communist parties. They have to control the propaganda, they have to control the messaging. And here was an opportunity in Doklam. Uh, also in this, uh, the language that the Chinese use in the statement post-1267 to control the messaging. They give the appearance that they are reasonable, that they are looking for peace and stability in South Asia, whereas they make it look like the Indians are aggressors, Indians can't behave responsibly. Similarly in Doklam, they looked at an 1890 convention, ignoring subsequent treaties where they were, the Chinese were ignoring their obligations. So, you know, there is a concept called lawfare warfare mixed with legal uh, approaches and this is what the Chinese are doing now. They do not engage in kinetic conflict, actual physical fighting, but they set the ground to undermine a country's legitimacy by engaging in propaganda, uh, you know, using spurious legal arguments sometimes. I mean, they look, uh, you know, they look at Britain, for example, with Brexit and say, look, this is a problem with democracy. You have procedural democracy, but you do not have actual democracy. And when you have only procedural democracy, people make quote-unquote mistakes like Brexit. So in a way, it's mm -hmm. playing into the general feeling that, well, Britain made a mistake or the US elected Trump. But you see, this is what you get if you follow democracy the way the Westerners do. Okay, let's come back to the um, China-India equation. Um, you mentioned uh, Doklam. How do you how do you sort of rate the um, relationship between the two countries after the uh, Doklam standoff as way? Well, uh, you know, post Doklam, of course, both sides understood that there were, you know, things that they had let things get out a little bit out of hand, uh, and then there was also the issue that Trump in the U.S. was turning the, ch the American attention uh, rather very strongly on, f uh, you know, in a very uh, America, well, America first, as he says, very uh, inward looking domestically, but also very hard on its allies abroad, as well as uh, targeting China. And this, the Chinese plus, of course, he launched a trade war. And therefore, uh, in India, on, on our side, we, we had the pressure of upcoming elections. Our government had the pressure of upcoming elections. So, one of the results of Doklam standoff is the Wuhan summit, mm -hmm. so-called Wuhan spirit. Now, I read the Wuhan spirit as something entirely very tactical on both sides. The Americans, uh, the Chinese had the pressure of the American trade war, the trade war with the Americans, and the Indians had the pressure of the elections. And in India, you know, China doesn't really affect elections. Pakistan does. Mm -hmm. Emotive issues, emotional issues, religious issues is what... But still, pinpricks from China could uh, potentially uh, be a problem for the government going into elections. Absolutely. And which is why I think the government has decided to lay low and not name China in the uh, statement that the MEA made post the 1267 uh, committee uh, decision. Because uh, clearly the government doesn't want to, uh, you know, get the Chinese breathing down its back when in election season. Because you see, the same problem that the Chinese face in, uh, in at home, when people will ask, look, why are you co uh, trying to 
uh, you know get into a fight with the Americans when you can't handle the problem of India, right? Mm. Same thing we will ask here, is China the bigger problem, strategic problem or is Pakistan the biggest problem? And I think any realist, any long term thinker will accept in India that China is a larger problem that we have, alright? Maybe we will not go into a war with it, but politically, economically and then even on issues like climate change where we used to cooperate, China is becoming a challenger. Jabin, you, you, you said that, um, if I may paraphrase you, you said Doklam tamed India to some extent. Is that, is that what you were trying to get? No, 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 the, you talked about the moderation in the language that the MEA spokesperson used in sort of responding to um, um, China blocking uh, Masood Asar's uh, blacklisting, etc. Um, it didn't even take the, uh, uh, the, the name, China's name. Um, if you look at the rhetoric from the Indian side about Quad and containing China, all of that has basically reduced since uh, the Doklam standoff. Um, so does that mean that there is now a uh, rapprochement between the two sides based on understanding that China will not have any pinpricks vis-a-vis India and India will try not to irritate China. Is, am, am, I, am, am I getting it right? So, well, tamed India is not, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but nor would I call it rapprochement. Okay. Uh, I think there is some sort of a tacit understanding that, uh, you know, these shouldn't, uh, the two countries should not engage in, uh, you know, making life difficult for each other. Maybe they don't so, say it in so many words, but it's understood that China's international context is this and India's domestic context is this. Uh, and I don't think that just because the Quad is not mentioned right now, uh, it means that the Quad is completely out of the, you know, dead in the water. I think there is a very clear understanding within sections, uh, important sections in the government and in the strategy community in India, that it was a mistake to have let the Quad die a slow death in its first avatar. Uh, and that all that has happened is China has built up its capacity and engaged in something like the South China Sea reclamations because there was nobody to challenge China, all right? And China is basically under the, under the you know, radar. radar, done all this uh, and there is nobody. Now, it's too late to stop them or too late to roll them back. So, I don't think the Quad has disappeared. Uh, we have to see, of course, what the situation will be after the elections in India. And I expect that the situation between India and China is likely to sort of not be so easy after the election. You know, uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi tweeted, uh, weak Modi is scared of Xi. Not a word comes out of his mouth when China acts against India. Basically trying to say that um, um, the Indian side is uh, going easy vis-a-vis -vis China because it doesn't want to be pushed against a wall by the Chinese. How much do you agree with what the Congress president is saying or do you disagree with him completely? No, I, I think uh, what the Congress President is saying is was also true in many respects of the previous administration. So, it's not as if the case that the UPA did not, uh, you know, go easy on China. I mean, the Quad essentially fell through during the UPS, yeah. uh, UPS time. Uh, but also, I mean, this is political football, which is also a problem as far as I am con concerned, because this sends mixed messages to countries outside. Uh, about how serious India is dealing with the China challenge. I mean, the External Affairs Minister, uh, Minister of State for External Affairs, General V.K. Singh, tweeted right after the 1267 decision that uh, he, you know, he basically uh, said the Chinese position was akin to the position of some political leaders and parties in India. Again, I think that is just not done, uh, where you sort of mix, conflate a foreign policy issue with a domestic issue and try to impute motives. I, I think uh, that should be avoided. But uh, 
both sides, you know, both political parties in power have had have questions to answer about their policies with China. Jabin, do you agree with the um, sort of unstated argument doing rounds these days that China has become the dominant power in the region, in the South Asian, Southern Asian region? Mm -hmm. India has no choice but to accept that. Um, how, how do you sort of look at that, that sort of a statement? Look, I think that's just buying into Chinese propaganda, all right? Okay. Uh, there is never a situation in which uh, things are, you know, black and white as some one country dominating uh, in the region or not. And, uh, you know, China might have had its, uh, you know, some good days in South Asia, but I think increasingly by its own actions, the bigger it gets, the bigger a target that China presents itself as. And uh, the more it gets involved with this Belt and Road Initiative in these countries, the more those countries themselves will see the perils of playing the China card in South Asia against India. I mean, the Sri Lankans have just given up a port and 15,000 acres of agricultural land around the port for a 99-year lease to the Chinese. Now, by no stretch of the imagination is that a good thing for the Sri Lankans, right? Uh, and the, Sri the Chinese are openly offering bribes in different ways to the Sri Lankan political leaders. Uh, I mean, Rajapaksa's case has already been well documented. But even with Sirisena, right after this Hambantota thing blew up a bit, the Chinese gave a big multi, hundred, several hundred million dollars uh, to Sirisena and said that you can do with it whatever you wish. And that's not how governments operate if accountability... But why should we Why should we spite the Chinese when the Chinese are developing ports or roads or infrastructure in the region? Oh. Don't, don't infrastructure and ports and roads... Um, aren't, aren't they useful for all, all countries in the region? No, no. I think here the Chinese are absolutely uh, doing a wonderful job in the sense that Asia is infrastructure deficient, and uh, Chinese have the only uh, the Chinese are the only ones with the capacity uh, to do much of this work. The Japanese do, of course. The ASEAN countries also have their own capacities. But uh, I think the problem here is how do these contracts, these projects, work out? It's not, it should not be the case that Chinese development today actually ends up worsening that country's, that host country's capacities. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be the case that Chinese bring their companies, their labor without any uh, knowledge transfer, skill transfer. Some of that is happening. So, you're basically saying there's a need to moderate the Chinese engagement in the region rather than ruling it out completely. That's true. And it's not the moderation shouldn't be left only up to India or the United States or anybody else. Those countries those host countries themselves should moderate, have the, develop, uh, the ability to moderate. And that's where India can score. If that is, if that is the argument, Jabin, answer me. Um, was it a good idea for the Indian side to say no to CPEC and OBO right in the beginning when, when the Foreign Secretary came out and said, uh, Jay Shankar, that it, it violates our sovereignty, we've not been consulted, so we are not going to be on board. So if the, if the objective is to moderate that, shouldn't India have engaged in a conversation to yeah. ensure that moderation takes place? So uh, I agree with you in the fact that uh, participation gives us certain advantages. But at the same time, you know, this is what the Chinese are playing at. They seem to think that they can do whatever they want to do. You see, the, the Silk Roads, the, the new Silk Roads, is not only about infrastructure projects. It's a political project in which a certain version of history is being put out there. Media is being brought up in these host countries with a certain kind of uh, image of China being built up. I've been to several of these Belt and Road conferences in China and nowhere in none of those conferences is any role acknowledged for India as a historical power along the old Silk Roads, the, even though the Chinese claim the legacy of the old Silk Roads.
to build up these new silk roads. Well, you can't you can't blame them if you are not there on the on the table. Then obviously that history will be sidelined. No, but you see there are Indian participants at the table, and they completely ignore the fact that India was a player. So fine, you, I mean historically we were there. Uh, now maybe we don't have the capacity, but there is no way that they can manage any of these projects without India's participation. I mean, you look at any map of the Belt and Road coming out of China, Indian mm -hmm. ports and cities are connected, which means that they see India as important. Why was China so insistent on India's participation at the 2017 Belt and Road mm -hmm. Forum? Why is it still insistent on India's participation? Because they see as India, India as central to the success of the Belt and Road. Now, if that being the case, we certainly have the right to highlight issues of concern to us. But maybe we should not be taking it too far in the sense that we need to participate in these projects so that we can moderate those projects, we can provide those countries getting on board these projects the ability to stand up to China where they have problems uh, and I think that is also important. Sovereignty, we are not letting go of sovereignty but we need to also work with this. And, and do you think it is possible for India to look for convergences with China in the region? Um, or is it, is, it, is it going to be mutually exclusive? Is it a zero-sum game? Or can there be sort of win-win situations where in, in, in the Wuhan statement itself, the two sides decided to work on a collaborative project in Afghanistan. Of course, that never took off, but that is a different matter. But is it, is it possible for India and should India try and look for convergences with China in the region? Look, I think it is not just India's responsibility to look for convergences. China also has a responsibility to look for convergences. And where I have to, I would advise caution on our side is look at issues where you know infrastructure is fine you know there are clear procedures clear methods and if it's open tendering it's not just chinese companies grabbing all the you know uh, the the moolah or the the goodies then it's fine because it's a fair and transparent process but where things like joint training comes in there the issue of polit politics comes in mm. are india and china on the same page in terms of its approach their approach to international law training methods or training what is the content of training and in there we have to be very careful because if we sign on to that, then we have a problem. And you know, come back, coming back to terrorism, we have this hand-in-hand terror, anti-terror exercise of the Chinese. Yeah. On the one hand, you blame the Chinese for, you know, blocking you. But on the other hand, you have this mixed signal of engaging with the Chinese on anti-terror. I think that's a problem. Jabir, tell me, what explains the Chinese enthusiastic push into the South Asian region, not just in the context of infrastructure development, but also peacemaking to some extent? I mean, look at the way the Chinese negotiated between the, the, the Bangladeshis and the, Myan, uh, and, yeah. and the Myanmar government on the question of Rohingyas, the way they are going about in Afghanistan, um, negotiating with the Taliban, they have a special envoy to talk to the Taliban, etc. Um, so are we looking at a, um, um, a, a Chinese state that is going to be engaged deeply at every level in the, in, the, in the Asian region, the South Asian region. If so, what explains that? What, what do the Chinese stand to gain from this? No, I mean, it is not just in the South Asian region, by the way. They have uh, special envoys to West Asia as well. They have, uh, you know, they want to be involved everywhere. What do the Chinese have to gain? Well, they want to be global number one. So, any power that wants to be number one needs to engage itself in all of these things. I mean, look at India post-independence. We did not have great capacity and yet we were involved everywhere because we wanted to be a globally ambitious power and that is what the Chinese want to do. You have been, been a researcher on China, you are now teaching Chinese studies. Um, what is missing um, in India as far as India's, India's research on China is concerned, India's focus on China is concerned? What, what I am really asking is what is the state of China studies in India? 
So it's a lot better than even five years ago or even before, even when I started. But that doesn't tell me what it is. Yeah, but I think we also have to look at the positives. But we are a long, long way away from uh, being anywhere uh, world class on China. And you know, my concern is not just China. I mean, today we talk about China, but tomorrow the important country might be Egypt or Brazil or somewhere else. So what is India's capacity on these other parts of the world? See, we talk about ourselves being a global power, but we do not have the investments in the academics, in the languages, uh, and in the cultural context of, with these countries, with, with the rest of the world. Instead, we seem to be turning inward and parochial and sort of navel-gazing. I think that's not the sign of a good uh, major or uh, power with global ambitions. We just need to expand capacity, government, academics, and military. So why is that not happening? You you were you were an assistant. You were the assistant director of India's biggest uh, think tank focusing on China. So I, I think primarily, of course, it's a money issue. You know, uh, priorities are different for politicians who have to make these final decisions. Second, How I much think. How money are we talking about? Yeah. Big well, yes, of course. You know, that's what uh, India is not. Uh, I mean, India might be a developing country, but it does not lack money where it's required. But also, I think it's a lack of vision. It's a lack of connect between saying we want to be a global power and the willingness to do the things necessary, take the steps necessary, because it requires hard work. It requires investment. It requires the government to be able to be uh, to be more open with information, more respectful of opinions from outside the four walls of government, all of that. I mean, you take a simple example of the Indian military. The Indian military today is far, far open, more open mm -hmm. to Indian academia than right. the government is, That's the right. civilian bureaucracy is. Right. And that is because for the Indian military, things are much more a matter of life and death and of immediate importance and planning. And therefore, they realize that they have, they lack the capacity. And therefore, they realize that they need to, you know, talk to the academics. That uh, realization has still not dawned on the civilian bureaucracy. They think that they know everything, frankly. Jabin, Jabin sorry to ask the silly sounding question, but um, how, many, how many researchers in India or academics in India are focusing or working on China at this point of time? And that's, that's one of our biggest strategic challenges of the future. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, it, see, it depends on what you mean by focusing on China. There's a bunch of things that you need to take into account whether they have Chinese language expertise, whether they have lived in China, have some lived experience of Chinese speaking environment in China or Taiwan, uh, whether they are looking at China full time or whether they are looking at China from as an aside to other disciplinary issues. For example, economists can look at China, but China is not their focus. So the people who are 100% focused on China also speak the language, also have lived in China, who will travel regularly to China. I think that's, you know, less than very, very few. I mean, I hate to say that. There's, I think, maybe less than 20 people. Wow. All right. So, and this is our biggest country, our biggest neighbor. Uh, and uh, it requires far more attention than we have given it so far. And it's, uh, it's something that can change overnight if the government puts its mind to it. Okay, just to sort of uh, shift gears, um, how, does the, how does the Chinese um, state or the Communist Party what is its view of the international system? And in that view of the international system, where does India fit in? At least in the Chinese scheme of things, in the Chinese um, underworld view of things, well, can show us it way. Look, uh, you know, the Communist Party of China is also not one monolith. Uh, you know, under different leaders, it has put forward different ways of approaching the world. 
But at the end of the day, uh, I think as Xi Jinping's leadership has shown, uh, they have a very fixed uh, approach to these things. Uh, they, the Communist Party of China is really about preserving Communist Party of China in power in China. And it will do whatever it takes to ensure that. And for that, uh, sometimes you have to show that you are uh, willing to take leadership positions, show that this party is capable of defending China's interests abroad. And unfortunately, increasingly the approach is very Manichaean, black and white in a sense that uh, uh, what the Americans are doing is wrong and what the Communist Party of China is doing is right. So I think there is increasingly this very strong ideological divide that's being built up. And that's only visible if you read, if you know what's going on inside China. If you look at the Chinese rhetoric from their MOFA, from the embassies, it doesn't give you that impression. So which is why, of course, we need more people to be paying attention to China. A lot of people understand and realize this, but that messaging is not coming across. Because if it were to come across more openly in India, it would mean that we would have to shift our attention from Pakistan and pay attention to the real challenge of China. So just to go back to my earlier question, which is, um, um, so where, where does India fit in? Um, India, like I said, that world view, as it were. if the Chinese have to acknowledge India as posing a significant challenge, then the Communist Party of China has a problem on its hands because then it will have to explain to its people why is China focused on the Americans when it has first to deal with the problem or the challenge posed by India. And the challenge posed by India is that it's a 1 billion plus country that governs itself democratically. Uh, and that uh, seems to grow at a very fast, uh, fairly good economic uh, rate of growth. And the Chinese can say, well, you know, we don't need 10% growth or we don't need 6% growth. Give us less, but give us more freedoms, give us more openness. Mm -hmm. And that's a political challenge for the Communist Party. And that really, while India does not seem to get the time of the day in China's, uh, yeah. uh, you know, press, or even when they talk about in, you know, general affairs, internal affairs, the fact is it is a challenge. And the better India does democratically, economically, the better, the more attention it will gain in China. Jamin, this, this is my final question. And, and, and very sort of briefly, what is the way forward for India and China? Well, firstly, I think you can't conduct policy without expertise. Okay. So I think uh, to come back to your question yeah. about uh, expertise on China and India, we need more people to study China. And not just politically, but also economists studying China. We don't have one full-time economist in this country that's devoted to studying the Chinese economy. And the Chinese economy is a big economy, it's the world's second largest economy. And if we get all our information from outside, then we have a problem on our hands. I think we also need to reform our uh, civil-military relations. Mm -hmm. I think the state of affairs, the, the, the military needs to modernize and reform in India. All right, We are still a Second World War era, colonial era military in India in many ways uh, and uh, you know without also showing, being, showing ourselves capable of showing military muscle uh, as well as uh, military reforms. Uh, in addition to economic reforms and sticking to democracy at home, you know we will not achieve the all-round effect that we need. Do you foresee more, more friction and tensions between the two sides? I think in the short term, yes, there will be more tensions between the two sides. On that not so positive note, Jabin, thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful thank talking you. to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.